Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Monday, July the 4th, 2022. It is currently 2.46 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. I hope you're having a great day. If you're listening to us live on this July the 4th, thank you so very much. I know it's the holiday. You probably have a million other things you could be doing. So if you're taking any of that time to listen to us live, thank you so very much. If you don't hear this on July the 4th, you hear us July the 5th, 6th, 7th, or whenever you hear it, thank you for tuning in because even though it's not may not be a holiday when you listen, you as well have a million other things to do and a million other things you could be listening to. So we greatly appreciate it. I hope that this is going to be something that proves to be extremely beneficial and helpful. I'm just going to tell you right now, there's no way we're going to be able to complete this in one episode. I'm having a feeling that it will take us three to four episodes to probably to work through this and walk all the way through this. And I hope that you will appreciate that I'm going to give this that much time. There's still a lot of information I don't know. It's a lot of things I don't understand, but we're going to work on work on it together and hopefully come to some very, well, important discoveries and some important information. But before we do anything, I think it's best to start in a very practical way, right? We're going to be listening to something. We're going to be listening to a very, we're going to be listening to a very long audio clip. We're going to be reviewing and taking apart and analyzing and critiquing a very long audio clip. I I won't call this an audio clip, a sermon that it appears to be one hour and 20 minutes long. So it's going to take a long time to review and critique it. But before we get to the sermon, I want you to really, really, really hear what I'm about to ask you, and I want you to be as brutally honest as you can. When it, and I want you to really think about this because I want this to be very practical. I want I want to put forth an, a personal application for to you and to you and to me right here at the beginning, right? Because it's one thing to listen to something and critique it and go, well, that was wrong or, oh, that was right or that was good. Just to be sitting there in a sense, passing judgment or critiquing what someone else has said. I want to start by, well, critiquing and, well, maybe passing a little judgment against ourselves. All right. Is that sound like a good idea? Does it? I think so. It's always good to start with yourself, right? Or at least I've had to learn that in my Christian life because there was a time I think it was always easier to start with everyone else. But here's the question. Here's what I want you to consider. When it comes to false teachers, when it comes to a preacher preaching false doctrine, false teaching, what's really the first thought that comes to your mind when you hear about them, you hear their false teaching, you hear their false preaching, you see their book that contains false doctrine. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Is your first thought critique, condemn, expose, talk about? Or is your first thought, Lord, please have mercy on them and grant them repentance of their false doctrine and bring them to a greater understanding of truth? 
Is your first thought, man, this person is whacked. This person has no clue what they're talking about. This person is a heretic. This person is an apostate. Did you hear that sermon? Did you see what they wrote in that book? Did you? That person is crazy. And you just immediately, all of the things that come out is just critique, condemnation, maybe mocking, maybe making jokes. But your first thought is attack. Your first thought isn't, Lord, I beg and plead with you to bring them to repentance. Is your first thought to plead with God to bring them to repentance, to grant them to repentance, to have mercy on them? Or is your first thought simply to condemn and talk about? Now, do we, do, yeah, does anyone say amen at this point or do we say, oh me? I have to say, oh me. My first thought is just like, man, that's garbage. I can't believe they got that wrong. I, my first thought is attack, talk about, condemn, expose. Hey, hey, it may even make for a great podcast episode, right? It may great make for a great podcast episode. And I have to ask this question because there's a lot of ministries out there that really their, their whole focus is they'll call it discernment ministries, right? Where they spend their time looking at what everyone else is preaching, looking at what, at, well, at what everyone else is ta- teaching. Then they grab that preaching, grab that teaching, and then they use it as their subject matter so that they can then condemn it, expose it, you know, and point it out. And then they develop a following, right? They become more and more popular. They get more and more downloads. And in some cases, the, the more they condemn it, the, the more over the top their condemnation is, the more hot takes they give against it, they end up building a ministry by, by pointing out and condemning everyone else's false teaching. So then you have to ask, what is their ultimate goal? Their motives may be at first, oh, we just want to warn people and expose. But I wonder at some point when you're warning and exposing, it becomes more about building yourself up by tearing someone else, tearing someone else down. And somewhere in the midst of all of that process, you almost forget and almost lose any desire to see the false teacher come to repentance. I think it has to be at least mentioned. It has to be discussed. At least, okay, maybe you don't have to ask yourself that question. Maybe this is all about me. I have to ask myself that question. That's one of the reasons I have a rule that when I review a sermon, whenever I review a sermon where I'm going to be offering critique and analysis, that I don't watch it or listen to it first, right? So what I do is I pick a sermon that's maybe random, and I'm like, we're going to review it, but I don't listen to it first, because if I listen to it first, it feels like I'm going through almost preparing my reaction, preparing my thoughts. And so it becomes like a rehearsed it's like I'm putting on a play, right? It's like I'm rehearsing for it. Oh, I could, re- oh, I could tear that apart. Oh, I could really condemn that. And that just seems disingenuous. What is my, when I review a sermon, what am I really hoping to accomplish? Well, the, there's a couple of th- reasons I review sermons. Number one is because I like to listen to sermons and I like to talk about them. So a lot of times I just pick a random one and play it. And we just talk about it. So there is no secret agenda. I'm not trying to expose. I'm not trying to condemn. It's just like, hey, I'm getting ready to listen to this. Let's listen to it together. Sometimes I love it. Sometimes I dislike it. Sometimes I end up going in a completely different direction. So I think there, my motives are right and pure, right? It's just, I want to listen to a sermon. And I'm not, and I'm literally picking something at random. Sometimes 
I'm picking a random sermon to review because it relates to something else we are teaching. Like we did a, we reviewed an, was it R.A. Torrey sermon on the Holy Spirit because, well, we've been studying the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it relates. Sometimes it's just like, hey, we've been studying this. Let's just find a random sermon and talk about it. Sometimes I'm reviewing a sermon because someone emails me and says, hey, I was listening to this. What do you think? Now, sometimes they'll give me an indication they think it's really, really bad. Sometimes they'll give me an indication that it's really, really good, but I don't listen to it. I just review it because I'm asked to do so. And most of those cases, I think that my motives are somewhat, there's a check and balance, and therefore it can't be done for the wrong reasons. Now, sometimes, yes, I hear that a sermon is absolutely messed up, absolutely heretical, and but I still don't listen to it first. Because again, I feel like I would be rehearsing. So there, I, I usually try to be very transparent. Look, everyone is saying this is messed up. Everyone's saying this is heretical. I'm going to review it. And I, and I kind of let you know that I'm already going in with possible bias. All right. But I hope that anytime I'm reviewing a sermon where I'm going in with a possible bias, I hope, I pray that deep inside of me, I never lose a heart that really wants the person I'm critiquing or reviewing, that I truly want them to repent. I want them to repent. I want them to be restored back to a, a correct doctrine, a correct understanding. I want them, I should want what's best for them, not what's best for me. It's very easy. I, again, sometimes I, it's almost like, it's almost like a, a sport. Right. And, and I see this within Christian men, maybe more than so than Christian women, but Christian men like, Oh man, that guy's a heretic. He, Oh, you got to listen to that. And it's almost like it's a sport. Like, man, these guys are losers. And, and we just pile on. I, I, and this happens a lot in, in, in the world of social media. Oh, people love to do it. Grab a 30 second or a minute clip from say Stephen Furtick from what Elevation Church. And then post it on social media and then everyone underneath just piles on. This guy can't preach. If this guy worried more about his study than his wardrobe and just pile on. And it's like, I don't see anyone going, hey guys, if anyone stopped to pray for this guy, pray that he, he would grow to a, a greater level of understanding. Pray that as he continues to, to read the Bible and look at the Bible, that his study, his study would lead him to realize some of the errors in his teaching. I don't see any compassion or any desire for repentance. And I think it's something we have to ask ourselves. And, and, I, and I don't know, maybe it's just a, a Christian guy thing. I, I don't know. I think Christian women maybe tend to be more, maybe more compassionate? I, I don't know. You, you can tell me your thoughts. You, you can email me that. But the reason I'm starting with this question is one, because I think it's very relevant and very practical. But in this particular case, we're going to get ready to review a sermon from someone who you probably has referred, you probably have referred to them as a heretic. I've referred to them as a heretic. And as soon as I saw this, I was like, wait, what? Wait, that pastor did what? And then I stopped and asked myself and said, wait a minute. Do I celebrate this? Do I rejoice in it? Because I don't think I ever once stopped to pray for this individual, to pray for their repentance. I think I've, all I ever did was talk about them and condemn them. And so immediately when I saw this news article, I was convicted. I was convicted. I'm like, once again, I prove that I am an absolute train wreck of a human being, that I 
don't maintain the right spiritual mindset. Because anytime this, I would see preaching from this person, I would condemn it. I would talk about it. I would point it out to other people. But I don't think once I ever stopped and said, Lord, please, please be with this individual. Please help them. Please, please, Lord, just have mercy on them. I don't think I, 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 I don't, I know I never fasted for them. I know I know I, I, I did very little. I did very little other than probably just running my mouth. But in spite of that, it appears as this individual, or at least according to the initial reports, has repented of their false teaching. Now, on I'm super happy, rejoice, praise God. But then I'm like, why didn't I ever pray for this? But here is the story. This was posted 10 hours ago. I came across the story just a few hours ago and have been trying to go, wait, what's happening? I still don't know all the details, but we're about to figure it out together. Are you ready? Here we go. Creflo Dollar repents of false teaching. Wait, what's going on? Creflo Dollar's repenting of false teaching. Okay, what false teaching? What's happening? According to this headline, Creflo Dollar repents of false teaching. Throw away every book, every tape I ever did on the subject of tithing. So it seems that where he has repented is he's repented specifically when it comes to his teaching on the subject of tithing. He has come to a conclusion that he was wrong. He's repenting and he's telling everyone throw away every book and throw away every tape. I don't know who would still have tapes, but okay. Throw away everything that uh, that contains my teaching on the subject of tithing. That is what we are hearing. Now, here's a little bit of, of information about Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar, according to one source, is one of the most infamous and successful prosperity preachers to have ever lived, joining such men as Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland as the trio of arch heretics most responsible for exporting the false prosperity gospel throughout the world, all right? A, a, televan- a televangelist and pastor of the 30,000-member World Changers Church International in Atlanta, he's known for his wealth and extravagant lifestyle, owning several multi-million dollar homes, expensive luxury cars, and being a proponent of little God's theology and making headlines back in 2015 when he asked followers and supporters to fund his purchase of a... 65, is that a, yeah, well, put it this way, an extremely expensive, because I don't want to say the number because uh, I don't have a source here. I just got one source, so I don't want to, just just say he asked for the purchase of a very expensive private jet. Let's just say that, an expensive private jet, uh, because uh, this would be, what, what, 65 million, I think is what's being reported here. That would be crazy, but I, I, I don't, that don't give me a footnote here, so I'm going to be careful. Just say an, ext- an extremely expensive jet. A best-selling author, he's also known for his broad reach with his Changing Your World broadcast ministry, going out to nearly every country on earth, garnering millions of followers and listeners. Knowing for his brow being, beating his audience about the importance of following the Old Testament tithes and giving more money to his ministry. One person explains his teaching, the way prosperity is activated is by planting of seeds so that the person who wants financial prosperity 
must plant a seed of financial prosperity. Needless to say, such seeds are usually through a donation to a ministry like his. All right. Um, There's a lot more they go on to say here, but then they have supposedly a clip from the sermon. Do they give us a date? Okay. All right. Here, here's, this gets us some information we need. It was June the 26th when the sermon was preached. And it was during that sermon called The Great Misunderstanding, Creflo revealed to a shook crowd that he has had a change in beliefs, repudiating his former understanding, his former understanding of scripture and giving a half decent presentation. So the claim is somewhere in the middle of the sermon that they describe the audience as being shook shaken. I've seen it a couple of different ways. He he basically starts kind of repudiating and repenting of his false doctrine. And um, I'm, I'm going to see here. I'm going to look here. Just because Okay, one second. I'm going to I'm going to see if I can find the original headlines about the airplane here. Um yes, okay. Uh, I I wanted to verify be, this is from CNN. Uh Minister Creflo Dollar asked for a 60 million dollars in donations for a new jet. All right, so I wanted to verify that. I saw the number and I was like, "Oh, do I read it?" but I wanted to verify. So, 60 million dollars for a, and a donations for a jet. I think this one reported 60 no, they report 65 million. All right. So they have CNN reports 60 million. This source reports 60. See why I was careful about uh, trying to say the number? Like I got ready to say it and I'm like, mm, do I say that? Do I not say that? Do I say that? Okay. So we have one source saying 60 million, one source saying 65 million. Two different sources. You can, you can, that's why we're just going to say he obviously sought donations for a very expensive plane, a very expensive jet. So that's kind of been his way of operating. He's operating very much like you, if you want to activate prosperity in your life, you've got to plant a seed specifically in his ministry. He may say you could do it in other ministries, but usually they're the ministry that says, this is where you need to plant your seed. And if you plant that seed in their ministry by a financial donation, that's how you plant the seed, you plant the seed by a financial donation, then boom, prosperity is activated in your life. So really, you give so that you can get. Hey, and I've seen this presentation on Christian television a million times, and there's even been times in my life where I was tempted to try giving them money because, you know, I didn't have any money. And I thought, man, I I wonder if this would work. Because you hear it, and you're like, it's got to work. It's got to work. It's got to work. But the idea, like, you basically are broke. Okay, what do you have left? $5, $10, $15, $20. You go plant the seed in their ministry, boom, it's going to activate. And that $15, $20, it's going to be four, it's going to become 40, 50, 60, 100, and you're going to get back. And this will give you greater prosperity so that you can be a greater supporter of the kingdom of God. And God can use you great. great. You just got to demonstrate that faith. Then God will bless you and he'll bless you so that you can support more ministries. And then you can well live a blessed life. I know it sounds ridiculous. I know it sounds bad. But if you're ever in a situation where you're like, what am I going to do? I need money. Well, sadly, it, it may look like a spiritual option, but in reality, it is not. I never did that, but I definitely saw it, would see it like, you know, two in the morning, you know, on a, on a television and go, man, 
I, I, I definitely could use some money right now. Well, only people are going to be blessed for that is the ministry you give money to. But according to this, Creflo Dollar has repented. So guess what we're about to begin? We're about to begin a mini-series where we're going to review the sermon in question. A, the great misunderstanding by Creflo Dollar that was preached on, let me get the exact date right here. I'm, so, I'm glad we took the time to look up the uh, how much money. Let's see here. Um, June 26, 2022. The title of the sermon is The Great Misunderstanding. Now, I, want, I won't name the person, but someone was very helpful to me. Uh, they emailed me about a different sermon. I said, well, right now I'm trying to track down the sermon for this. And then they emailed me saying, looks like it came from this sermon. I would like to hear that myself. So I'm very grateful that, I mean, they tracked it down. If you looked at the time period, see, they emailed me, they emailed me at 1.30. I emailed them back somewhere between 1.30 and 1.40. And by 1.46, they had already emailed me back a link to the sermon from Creflo Dollar. They found it, boom, instantaneously. They did, they did point something out because the person who emailed me seems to me have a little bit more knowledge about Creflo Dollar than I do. They said, they said they started it. And it's definitely the original sermon. So that's good. They're verified as the original sermon. Um, but I don't have time to listen to much. All right. Understand that. And they said this. He reads a lot out of the New Living Translation. Do people still use it? I have, I have one somewhere, but haven't pulled it out in a long time. You may want to have that translation available if you have it and see why he's using it since he usually uses the KJV. That is interesting. Why did he move from the KJV to a different translation? That, that, that'll be interesting. So I will have BibleHub.com ready to go. And um, we'll look up all translations. We'll look up all verses mentioned or cited in the sermon. And we'll see how they read in numerous English translations just to see why the possible switch. I, I, I don't know if in the sermon he explains why. Maybe we'll find out. Maybe we will not. Now, you've got to hear what I'm about to say before we start. I know we're taking 21 minutes, but that's okay. We, we should not expect that everything in this sermon is going to be correct, biblically sound, or theologically sound. So there's going to be some things that we're going to be like, uh, nope, disagree with. And so some people are like, he's still a heretic. Just be thankful that he's realized, that he's seeing some error and moving in the right direction. How about just be grateful and continue to pray that maybe more repentance and more understanding will come along? Doesn't mean we don't condemn the false doctrine. If I hear something, that I think is false, I'm going to immediately stop the sermon, turn on the microphone and call it out. But I don't want to lose and I don't want to lose a desire just to see the person come to repentance. And again, on one hand, I'm, I'm celebrating that he's repented of some false doctrine. On the other hand, I'm grieving the fact that I don't think I ever prayed for him one time. And I think you could probably say, look at your own life and see how that applies. Are you ready? Here we go, Creflo Dollar, June the 26th, 2022. He preached a sermon called The Great Misunderstanding where he supposedly repented at least of his teaching in regards to tithing. Let's see what happened during this sermon. We will not finish this, but we're gonna go as long as we can. If you're listening live, feel free to throw in any thoughts or questions. If you're not listening live, email me thoughts and questions to newsif at yahoo.com. All right, here we go. 
We thank you for this, another opportunity to minister to these, your precious sheep. Thank you, Lord, that revelation and knowledge will flow freely, uninterrupted and unhindered by any satanic or demonic force. And Father, I pray that you will speak through my vocal cords and think through my mind. None of me and all of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. God. Okay, now he talked about allowing revelation to flow. I don't know exactly what he means by that. I just hear charismatic theology all over that. Again, revelation is complete. There's no more new revelation. It's contained in God's word. And whenever a preacher says, God, speak through me, I always get nervous because, because here's the reason why. To me, it's a subtle form of manipulation. If I say, God, speak through me, and then I preach, and I say, God spoke through me, then how can you call into question anything I preach because God was supposedly speaking through me? God, take over my vocal cords. God, take over my mind. Speak through my mind. Speak through my vocal cords. You speak. Well, if God is the one doing the speaking, then I'm above reproach. I'm above any ability to be critiqued. And I know, I pray that what I have studied in God's word, I will be able to speak clearly. And guess what? What I've studied in God's word, it may or may not be accurate because I'm a fallible human being. So I, I, I know we just, use, again, we use all kinds of language within the church and we don't ever think of its implications. If God is speaking through you, then nobody can say your sermon was wrong. Well, if God was speaking through you in the past and you're getting ready to repent of what you said in the past, then God clearly wasn't speaking through you in the past. So then how can I trust that he's speaking through you in the present? You see the problem with that? Okay, all right, here we go. Bless you, you may be seated. I, uh, I want to start off by saying to you that I'm still growing and that the teachings that I've shared in times past on the subject of tithing were not correct. Wow. Okay, we just we're <laughs> there's no there's no uh, waiting around. Uh, I'm still growing, and the things I've taught in the past about tithing wasn't correct. I look, I got nothing but respect for anyone who can stand behind the pulpit and say, "Look, what I taught in the past was isn't correct, and I was wrong." I, I we, and we're all growing. We're all growing. I I love to see church more as a group of people, including the pastor, that we're all just trying to grow together. We're all just stumbling and fumbling through the thing we call Christian life. We're all trying to figure it out. There's going to be sin. There's going to be failure. There's going to be mistakes. There's going to be teaching that's right. There's going to be teaching that's wrong. What we think about, what we understand today may not be our understanding tomorrow. And that there's that grace to, to work, to just struggle together. I'm not saying we excuse sin. Sin has to be dealt with. I'm not saying that, but we need to see all of us from the one in the pulpit to the one in the pew, from the one in the pulpit to the one in the sound booth, from the one in the pulpit to the one in the Sunday school class, everyone, we're just fallible people who are sinners stumbling through this thing called the life, stumbling through this thing we call the Christian life, and we are trying to figure it all out. And there's going to be failure, there's going to be mistakes. We doesn't mean we just excuse our mistakes, but we work together. We pick each other back up. We seek restoration. We seek to, to grow and move on. 
And um, I, I like that picture of the Christian life far more than like we've all we've got it all figured together and our pastor has it all figured out. I, I think we're just all trying to figure it out. We're all just we're all it, look. The Christian life is messy because we are a mess. The Christian life at times is a is a story of broken people working through their own brokenness, sinful people stumbling through their own sinfulness. It's not the brochure, become Jesus, become become a Christian and everyone, basically, everything is wonderful and great. No, we're just all messed up, broken people trying to figure it out. And 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 if, if I wish we would let everyone know, look, we don't have it all figured out. We, we have the imputed righteousness of Christ, so we are saved and we stand before God holy. But man, in our, in this everyday life, we're just trying to figure it out like, like the rest of, of everyone. I don't know. I, I see church more that way. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't, but you can, I, I love this just, hey, I'm still growing and I was wrong. I mean, that's just straightforward. I'm interested to see where this goes. And today I stand in, in humility to correct some things that I've taught for years and believed for years, but could never understand it clearly because I had not yet been confronted with the gospel of grace, which has made the difference. I want I don't know how, if you know how hard that is. I can't speak for everyone, but for a guy, I, I can only speak as a man. Man, male ego. Male ego is a dangerous thing. Man, male ego is a monster. You, you just don't understand. I, well, uh, okay. Maybe it's not fair. My ego. Look, is that better? Right? I can't speak for, for anyone else, but as a man, as a, as for me, me personally, forget male, for my ego, it's just so hard to stand up and go, guys, I was wrong. Guys, I taught that and I was wrong. I made a mistake. I was wrong. I, I hope I've always been able and willing to do that. I, I know I've had to stand up multiple times and say that I'm wrong. I know I've had to stand in front of people and, and repent of sin. And I know I've had to do multiple things in my Christian life that were all humiliating. Oh, and I wanted to die. But I, I hope, but I, I want you to know that anytime I ever had to do that, it's not that I wanted to. There was a part of me that did not want to because I always want to be seen. This is how I always want to be perceived. I want to be perceived as the smartest. I want to be perceived as the wisest. I want to be perceived as the best Christian podcaster. I want to be perceived as the best preacher. I want to be the best. I want to be seen as the best. I want to be the wisest, the smartest. I, that's what I want. And I, and I, I look to deny that would just be a lie. So when you have to turn on the microphone and go, guys, like, and I already, I'm already mad because I got ready to say the number and then I didn't say that. I'm like, maybe I should have just said the number. So then I'm like, I kind of stumbled over that whole part about the, the plane. I remember I did another podcast episode where I confused, uh, what, 30 million with, with, I don't know, 300 million with 300,000. I can't remember. It was some number. To this day, I'm still bothered by it because I made a mistake live on the air and it's on the internet. Or when I say a word incorrectly, I like it eats me alive, but it's because of pride. It's because of ego. So for him to stand in front of a church that has thir what 30,000 members and to say, guys, I was wrong. 
I was wrong. And it's because I'd never been confronted with the gospel of grace. I mean, that's saying a lot and it's not easy to do, but we've all got to be willing to do that. That's why I wish, I think it would be easier for all of us within the Christian community for this to be more common for all of us to say, I was wrong. I messed up. If we had a atmosphere where acknowledging failure isn't the beginning of the end of you, but admitting, confessing sin and failure was the beginning of a next step in your spiritual life and to restoration. I'm not talking about committing an illegal act. Illegal act has to be obviously given over to the courts. I'm talking about sin, where sin is confessed and openly everyone's like, okay, man, that's messed up. Okay, let's, but let's work together to restore you. That we could just be all more humble and more honest instead of all playing pretend and dress up. I hope that makes sense. So this is really powerful to me because I just know it couldn't have been easy to stand up behind that pulpit and say, hey, guys, I was wrong. I was wrong. It's Sometimes those are the hardest words to say, it was my fault. No one else is responsible. No one else is to blame. That's hard to do. It can be hard to do just in a, a relationship, just to look at the other person and say, I was wrong. It's my fault. Because you always want to say, well, Okay, it was my fault, but I mean, you you had something to do with it, right? Or you want to say, hey, it was my fault. I'm the only one to blame. And then you want the other person to go, no, 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 no. I was to blame too. Uh, yeah, you you almost, sometimes we want to say, I'm sorry, it was my fault because we think it will lead the other person to say, no, 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 no. It was partially my fault as well. All right, but let, let's get, yeah, I, I, I just, we all need more humility. We need to all be more broken, but let's continue. I won't apologize because if it wasn't for me going down that route, I would have never ended up where I am right now. But I will say. Okay, let me back that up. Sounds like he, he doesn't want to apologize because in his mind, if he never went down that road, if he never went down that road, he wouldn't end up where he is today. I think you can still apologize this this is my approach. I, I've made lots of horrible mistakes. And I think in many cases, those mistakes have led me to a better place, but I still have to apologize for the mistakes, right? I, I've committed sin that I think ultimately may have been better for me spiritually, but I was still wrong and have to apologize for the sin. I've taught things that were wrong. And I think it, that it was ultimately led me to where I am today, but I still have to apologize for that. Does Does that make does that make sense? Can't we be apologetic for what we did, but be grateful that in our failure and in our sin, we were brought to a better place spiritually? Let, let, let's let, listen to all of that again. Gospel of grace, which has made the difference. I won't apologize because if it wasn't for me going down that route, I would have never ended up where I am right now. But I will say that I have no shame at all at saying to you, throw away every book, every tape, and every video I ever did on the subject of tithing, unless it lines up with this. I've, I've done some corrective teaching in the, in, the, in the last 10 years, but not to the degree of what we're getting ready to do now. Okay, again, I still don't like, I don't know, how do you feel? I, I'm, I, I won't apologize. I won't apologize. I, won't, I don't know. I, I think you can apologize, but be grateful 
that in your failure, in your wrong teaching, you still that it ultimately worked in a way that brought you to a better understanding. I think you can still say I was wrong and I'm sorry, but I am great. I mean, it would be it would be foolish for me to say, hey, man, I, I made some horrible mistakes, hurt a lot of people, but I, I'm not going to apologize because ultimately I think it was be- I think it was best for me spiritually. That would be that would be messed up, right? I think that would be messed up. I, I think so. So I think we can say. I apologize, but I'm grateful that even though this was wrong and I made a mistake and I taught falsely, that somehow through all of this, I think I've ended up in a better place and I'm grateful for that. I, I think I think both can be true at the same time. So I don't know why he would say I won't apologize. I'm not a fan of that. I'm not a fan of that. Am I being too critical? Am I? I, I, I don't. I'm going. I don't know. I, I, I hope I'm not. Here we go. So why is this important? Because religion is sustained by two factors, fear and guilt. And if it's one subject that the church has used for a long time to keep people in fear and guilt, it is in that subject of tithing. Mm, religion basically sustains itself through fear and guilt. Through fear and guilt. I think there's a little truth to that. I think a lot of Christianity is more fear-based, not the fear of God, the fear of exposure, fear of shame, fear of sin. Um, not true, a true reverent, reverential fear of God, but a kind of a wrong kind of fear and guilt. Guilt, 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 guilt. I mean, you have to, I think Christianity, if you just look at the, the law of God, you live in a perpetual state of guilt. And I think in many Christians' mind, the way to overcome that guilt is simply to stop sinning. Be better. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Which, which you they either have to convince yourself that you've stopped sinning or you just live in a perpetual state of guilt. Fear and guilt. I, I think fear and guilt is 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 what the law brings the gospel removes that guilt and eases that fear not the fear of the right fear of god but eases that wrong fear and removes that guilt because the gospel is nothing to fear because i am covered in the perfect righteousness or the righteousness of christ has been imputed to me all my guilt has been removed because my sins have been paid for and i stand before god holy and righteous so i i think how much of your Christian life do you think has been more motivated by fear and guilt versus being motivated by gospel? That's that's a podcast episode. All right, let's see where he continues to go. And it has to be corrected, and it's got to be corrected now. I may lose some friends. Preachers may not ever invite me no more, but I think I've already been through that, so it doesn't matter. Go with me in our text today in the book of Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. And we're going to begin this, oh, probably two or three or four weeks as we really dig into it. Now, you don't know it. The last two weeks I've been setting you up for this one. You knew it, right? And some of y'all already know what I'm getting ready to say. You knew it because the gospel of grace has brought you to that place of understanding as well. But it's just that elephant in the room or the elephant in the body of Christ that needs to be dealt with. Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. 
Okay, I'm very intrigued here because you're getting ready to repent of tithing, but he's not going to a tithing passage. So it seems he's setting up this thesis. He got the, the wrong teaching on tithing was not the disease. It was the symptom. And that what, what had to be fixed is a better understanding of the gospel of grace. Once the gospel of grace was understood, then the symptom of tithing was corrected. That's an interesting approach because typically I got tithing wrong. Let's go through all the passages about tithing and show you how I got them wrong. And he seems to be playing. No, no, no. What I got wrong was the gospel of grace. And if I got the gospel of grace right, then I would have gotten tithing right. Now, that's interesting. I'm somewhat intrigued. Now, is his understanding the gospel of grace? My understanding the gospel of grace is his understanding the gospel of grace the biblical one. Now this, this is, this is, okay. We definitely need to think this through here. Okay. We, we gotta, we gotta pay. We need our discernment helmets on. All right. Discern. I'm very grateful for any false teaching he's repented of, but now I have to be kind of, uh, I gotta be somewhat cynical here and at least have a, I've gotta be at least careful. Maybe not cynical is the word. I gotta be cautious because listen to me carefully. If he repents of wrong teaching about tithing, but he gets the gospel of grace wrong, he gets a wrong gospel, a false gospel, then it doesn't really matter he repented of t- the teaching on tithing because he gets the gospel wrong. Everything else is comes is secondary. Would you agree with that? So I'm very curious, like when he, is this going to be more of a teaching about his understanding of the gospel or is this going to be more of a teaching about tithing? I don't know. I think it's, a, it, it, he definitely seems to be saying, hey, I got tithing wrong. We're going to go to Romans and we're going to talk about the gospel of grace. Whoa, okay. That's, that to me seems to indicate he is saying the tithing was wrong because the gospel of grace was wrong. I'm very intrigued. I'm very, very, very intrigued. Okay. You're not? Okay, I'm hoping you are. All right, here, here we go. Here we go. I'm dropping everything. All right, here we go. Once I start thinking, I have to pick up a pencil, right? I have to pick up a pencil because, okay, yeah, people, people give me a hard time about my, my, my teaching, my, my philosophy about pencils. So I won't go there. All right, here, because it'll become distracting. All right, here we go. Let's read it out loud together. Ready? Read. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but you're under grace. That's not just a cute little verse of Scripture. That's literally, you are not living and you are not conducting your life under the Mosaic law, which tithing is a part of the the law. You are not living, you are not uh, conducting yourself under the law. Ever since Jesus rose again from the dead, you have been completely uh, set free from living under that dispensation. You are under grace. Say out loud, I live under grace. grace. Now look at this in the NLT. You not only live under grace, you live according to grace. You live according to what Jesus has done. You live according to that new and living way. He says, sin is no longer your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Living under the requirements of the law made sin your master. 
Living under the requirements of the law made sin your master. He says sin is no longer your master. Why? Because you no longer live under the requirements of the law. So if you continue to try to live under the requirements and the dictates of the law, sin will continue to be your master. He says, instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. And that's what we are. And that is the basis of this teaching right here. Okay, so his, he, he read from uh, a couple of translations. It sounded like the ESV was in there. Then, of course, he mentioned the New Living Translation or the NLT, right? The NLT, sin is no longer your master for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. So to live under the law, sin becomes your master. And I think the reason why is because you will never be justified. You will never be righteous. You will never be holy living under the requirements of the law. You can try to, you can do everything you want under the requirements of the law. You can pursue it. You can live according to it, but sin is going to be your master because law will simply, the law, it, it, it reveals your sinfulness. The law simply reveals the sin that is in you. The law almost sets in motion. It almost excites the sinful nature. Wherever the, wherever the law is, thou shall, thou shall not. The sinful nature almost immediately rises up against it. So the, the law reveals your sin and it, and sin becomes your master because here's the law. You're like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be holy. I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to do this. And all of you can find out a sin, 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 sin. You're going to realize sin is your master. So then what happens, instead you live under the freedom, uh, uh, sin is no longer your master for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Why do you no longer live under the requirements of the law? Because we live under the freedom of God's grace. We're under grace because by grace we are saved. We place our faith in Christ, then his perfect righteousness and obedience is imputed to me. So in Christ, all the law is kept, all the law is met. I'm no longer under that. I'm no longer condemned by that. I'm under and in Christ. All right, so the, I, the law is no longer over me saying this is what I must do to be righteous. This is what I must do to be saved because I am saved by Christ, all right? So th- this is, he's going with this idea and he's saying this ultimately eliminates, it sounds like, then any requirement to meet, say, the Old Testament tithing law is the where he's going. Now, the New Testament would give, you know, how to give. Obviously, there's still giving going on in the New Testament. But all right, let's, we could get into a whole discussion about the law, which parts of the law, which parts of the law is binding, which part, we could, I mean, there's lots of discussion about that within Christianity. There's the, we, someone would, the antinomian view where basically no law, there's all kinds of different discussions about it. I don't know which direction he's going to go. We'll work, we'll work through it as we move forward. That scripture that says we are no longer under the law, but we live under the freedom of God's grace. So let's just, let's just really jump right into this. Tithing is an Old Testament concept. I'm going to prove that to you. Tithing is an Old Testament concept. The tithe was a requirement of the law in which the Israelites were to give 10% of the crops they grew and the livestock they raised. They were supposed to give 10% of that to the temple or to the tabernacle. Now, there are several scriptures I just want to go over real quick. Leviticus 27 and 30, you can write these down. I'll read them to you. But Leviticus 27 verse 30 says, one-tenth 
of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, it belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. Numbers chapter 18 and verse 26 and I read all these in NLT. Numbers 18, 26 says, Give these instructions to the Levites when you receive from the people of Israel the tithe I have assigned as your allotment. Give a tenth of the tithe you receive, a tithe of the tithe to the Lord as a sacred offering. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 24 and 25, Deuteronomy 14, 24 and 25 now, when the Lord your God blesses you with a good harvest, the place of worship he chooses for his name to be honored might be too far for you to bring the tithe. If so, you may sell the tithe portion of your crops and herds and put the money in a pouch and go to the place the Lord your God has chosen you. So he says, if that temple is too far away from you, go ahead and sell the harvest, okay? Uh, and, and put the money in a pouch and then, you know, you can go take it there. And then Second Chronicles chapter 31 and verse 5. Second Chronicles chapter 31 and verse 5. He says in verse 5, he says, when the people of Israel heard these requirements, they responded generously by bringing the first share of their grain, the new wine, their olive oil, honey, and all the produce, uh, of their fields. They brought a large uh, quantity, a tithe of all they produce. So in fact, the Old Testament law required multiple tithes. That's interesting. Multiple tithes. One for the Levites, one for the use of the temple and the feast, one for the poor of the land, which would have pushed the total to around 23.3%. <laughs> Some understand the Old Testament tithe as a method of taxation to provide for the needs of the priests and the Levites in sacrificial systems. In some places, it's very clear in the Old Testament that they gave 14, around 12 to 14 different tithes over seven-year periods. But then after the death of Jesus Christ, Matthew 5, 17, this is important. After the death of Jesus Christ, I want to reiterate again, tithing is an Old Testament concept. But after the death of Jesus Christ, Jesus fulfilled the law. Look at that in Matthew 5, 17. Jesus said, think not that I am come to destroy the law. So Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. And anything that was under the law, which included tithing, he said, or the prophets. He says, I'm not come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. So in Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to see Jesus fulfilling all of the law and at the same time talking about this new way that is to come. So after the death of Jesus Christ, Remember, it's very important that Christ fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law on your behalf. You will never fulfill the law. If you're under the law, you are a slave to sin. You're, you're, you're trapped. You're, you never will be righteous enough. You're never going to be godly enough. You're condemned, right? But Christ came and fulfilled it all. He fulfilled every requirement of the law and his obedience is imputed to you by faith. Therefore, you're no longer under the law because all the law has been kept for you on your behalf. 
right? That's very important. That's very important. Now, you say, well, what is the law? So what do we do with certain parts of the law? Okay, we'll see where he's going to go with that. And that's a good question. But just remember, as far as salvation, as far as trying to establish a righteousness, as far as trying to establish a godliness, no. In Christ, I have all of that righteousness. I have all of that holiness because he kept the law. He fulfilled the law for me on my behalf. And that's how salvation, very key element in salvation. Let's see where he goes. Fulfilled the law, the New Testament Nowhere after the death of Jesus, there's nowhere, no, nowhere commands or, or any commandments or even recommends that Christians submit to a legalistic tithe system. The New Testament nowhere designates a percentage of income a person should set aside, but only says gifts should be in keeping with the income. Talks about giving of gifts. Look at 1 Corinthians 16 and 2. In the NLT, 1 Corinthians 16 and 2. Now, I know all, you know, first thing somebody's going to say is, well, Abraham tithe, you have to get the teaching we just did. Abraham met Melchizedek, who was unannounced, and Melchizedek came and blessed him, and Melchizedek won the battle for him. And then when, when Abraham found all that out, he gave a tithe. He didn't give the tithe to get blessed. He was blessed before he gave the tithe. He didn't give the tithe to get the victory of the battle. He had already got the victory of the battle. And and the Bible says Melchizedek showed up with bread and wine, which points to the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. That was a shadow of the grace of God showing up. And so he gave the tithe as an expression of his dependence upon God because Melchizedek said, here is the possessor of heaven and earth. And Abraham said, what do I need with anybody else or anything on this planet if I'll hook up with him? And when he gave his tithe, it was an expression of his dependence on God. The Lord woke me up at 530 this morning and he said this to me. And he said, get up and write it down before you lose it. He said that your giving is a response to my ability to take care of you. Okay, now we got a problem. All right, God woke him up at five something in the morning and said, write it down. Now, the minute God gives you specific words to write down, I'm sorry, the Bible is no longer special because if God just gave you words to write down, it, it, he should be placing it inside his Bible. He just got direct revelation. He just, I mean, you talk about, he got dictation. He got better than inspiration. He, I mean, you could talk about the different methods of, of what some people believe how the Bible was inspired, but this would be a part of the dictation thing. God woke you up and gave you specific words. So clearly, he still got some serious wrong teaching and wrong doctrine. Now, we should pray that he would re- 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 come to the understanding that, that God is not speaking to him that way. No, he came up with a thought. I, God, I, no, I, I, because if you say that, then that's... Those words are literally on par with everything in my Bible. Say, no, it's not the same thing. How can you say it's not the same thing? God said, write this down. Write this. That's scripture, ladies and gentlemen. So I already have a problem. But I want to say something about the whole Abraham giving a tithe to Melchizedek that everyone always brings into the tithing debate. And preachers will say it like it resolves all the... Well, see, this is before the law. Just, there's no... There is nothing in that text that seems to indicate that Abraham is doing so out of any kind of like, 
I have to do it, any legal legalistic binding upon him. It seems that he's doing it almost as an expression of gratitude, express expression of of thankfulness. That that seems to be more what it was. Everyone tries to use that to improve it, but then you have the rest of the Old Testament where he's right. There's multiple tithes. They're giving well over 20% of of all of their income. So I mean, yeah, that that I think the whole Old Testament concept is somewhat problematic in trying to bring that over into the New Testament, where the New Testament seems to say, give as you are blessed, give as there is a need, right? And sadly, ministry requires money. But so, all right. But uh, I, I just, man, I, we just got to stop right. Oh, well, I'm not going to stop right there, but I just had to stop it because, you know, he's claiming that God is giving him, you know, direct words to write down. I'm going to back that up just a little bit so that we can we can get this. All right, here we go. His tithe, it was an expression of his dependence on God. The Lord woke me up at 530 this morning and he said this to me. And he said, get up and write it down before you lose it. He said that your giving is a response to my ability to take care of you. People are applauding that. You're giving as a response to my ability to take care of you. And everyone's clapping. And they're clapping because they're accepting that as being literally the words of God. That you're giving is, you're giving as a response to my uh, ability to take care of you or your dependence on my ability to take care of you. Now, if, if that's literally the words of God, you should write it down. I should write it down. And it should be right there. It should be, it should come after... Uh, let's see where it should come after Revelation 20. I don't want to say the wrong number. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. So it should be Revelation 22, 22. All right. Uh, Revelation 22, 22. So that would be the problem. Someone just said, and then the words he got better be spot on. Uh, I'm not, I'm not so sure. Yeah. His words would have to be spot on. It would have to be yeah, I mean, there's just so many problems with this. So I'm glad he's repenting of the one thing. I am very glad. But I, there, the man, the charismatic part is still very much active in there. And ugh, ugh, uh, and it, it, I, I just, I would have a question at this point. Now, I know, I know that I shouldn't do this, but I'm sit, if I'm sitting in that sanctuary, I'm going to be like, wait. So God woke you up at 5 o'clock, 5.30 in the morning to basically say your giving is a dependence on my ability to take care of you. So God could wake you up at 5.30 in the morning to fix this, but he didn't wake you up, I don't know, years ago to tell you that all of your teaching about tithing was wrong. So God let you teach all of those years where you basically, your, teething, your, your teaching on tithing ripped people off. It hurt people. I mean, he's got multi-million dollar homes. He's got a $60 million jet. Is he going to be returning any of that money to anybody? He's like, well, you know, I, I, I kind of placed you under a legalistic binding to tithe. You sent me all this money. I've done nothing but profit from it. I've lived a, a very extravagant lifestyle. I've benefited from it, but hey, I was wrong. Oh, but by the way, God woke me up this morning to tell me something. Well, why wasn't God waking me up years ago where you would stop fleecing the flock? Why would you not, why wasn't God not speaking to you in the past? I, it drives me crazy, the charismatic way of thinking. I don't understand the charismatic way of thinking. I don't, I don't, 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 don't understand. I don't understand. 
understand. I don't understand it. I, I've never understood it. The charismatic world has always looked at some like weird, like, what is that? Like, what is it? Well, what is it? To me, charismatic theology is like, you know, a UFO crashed in Roz- Roswell and I'm dry. I'm not seeing it really crashed in Roswell. Okay. Just, okay. But for illustration's sake, I'm driving down the highway. What also, what is that? And something crashes and explodes and I stop my car or truck. I just think, you know, in the middle of nowhere, Roswell, you got to be driving a truck and I pull over and I get out and all of a sudden this weird alien crawls out. I'm like, what? Ah, what is that? And I run the opposite direction. That to me is charismatic theology. It's some weird alien that scared me and made me run the opposite direction. I'm like, I don't know what that is. It's craziness. They think God is constantly talking to them. It's crazy stuff. I got to get away from, I don't know what it is. It's something foreign. It's something alien. I don't understand it. Any good charismatic should be asking, wait a minute, God woke you up this morning at five something a.m. to give you a point for his sermon, but he couldn't fix all of the false teaching on tithing where you fleeced the, the, the people of God and, and you became a multi-millionaire with multi-million dollar homes. Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that interesting? So God speaks to you now, but he didn't speak to you then. But back then, you know what? I guarantee if we go back and find those sermons when he was teaching his false teaching on tithing, what did you bet? I get you. I bet you, you heard sermon after sermon where God spoke to me. God said to this, this to me, God woke me up in the middle of the night, told me to write this down. God said, I bet you those sermons were full of that stuff because charismatics can't preach a sermon without saying God spoke to them. Every, I've told you before, spend a month, just download every charismatic sermon you can find, grab a notebook and just write down every, everything when they say, God told me this, God spoke to me this. And it's, it's, it'll be, it'll be, you'll have a Bible written in, a, in six months. You'll have an entire Bible. And it'll be the most contradictory, nonsensical stuff you've ever heard in your life or stuff that, I don't know, five years later, like, oh, I was wrong. No, no, you no, no, no. The way you taught it before is it didn't come from you. It came from God. So you're telling me now that God was wrong. But no, 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 God wasn't wrong. You were wrong, but you're still hearing from God. So what God tells you today, I can believe, but I got to reject what God supposedly told you yesterday. Nope, never mind. Time out. I'm out. I'm gone. So I know everyone's celebrating his repentance on his tithing, but I'm sorry. When this kind of teaching, when this kind of fraudulent stuff is still going on, I can't celebrate it. All right, call me a jerk, but I can't celebrate it because I, this stuff bothers me to no end. Because the minute you claim that God woke you up and you and told you to write it down, I can't. I'm not supposed to call it into question because supposedly it's literally the words of God for me to rebuke it or condemn it or deny it would be me basically condemning or rebuking scripture. That is such psychological manipulation that it's not even funny. So he used that same psychological manipulation, I guarantee you, in the past to teach his fraudulent teaching on 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 tithing. And now, but God is supposedly speaking to him today. If God shouldn't have been waking you up at five o'clock in the morning to give you a new point, he should have been like, you've been a false teacher for years. You take a deep breath. Okay. Yeah. Having a good having a good Fourth of July. Hope so. Hope so. I'm I'm doing great right now. Doing wonderful. Doing great. Blood pressure is about 962, but I'm I'm doing good. Doing good. He said, when you give, it is your declaration of dependence on me. Good. Can I can I read that again? Yes. 
your giving is a response to God's ability to take, take care of you. I give because I now know that God can take care of me. That's why Abraham gave. He gave a tenth of everything because he says, oh, that's the possessor of heaven and earth. I don't have to worry about nothing. So I'm going to give and I'm going to, in my giving, make a declaration that he is able to take care of me. You remember? Okay, let me see how, how this works. So I give to Creflo Dollar and it's a declaration that I believe God can take care of me. Why wouldn't Creflo Dollar say, don't give to me? Because it's a declaration that God will take care of Creflo Dollar. Right? I want you to hear that again. If my giving is a declaration that, that I am stating God will take care of me, right? If that's my, I'm giving to you because I'm declaring that God can take care of me. So therefore I don't need this money. I can give it to you because God will take, take care of me. Then Creflo Dollar should announce today, Hey, don't give me any money because I'm declaring my faith that God can take care of me. God's going to make sure I can make the mortgage payments on all of these multi-million dollar homes. God is going to make sure I can still maintain my $60 million jet. I don't no longer need any more money. We're going to take down all ability for anyone to give money. No, no. If you send a check, we're going to send it back and we're going to try to see if we can return some of the money that's been given to us as a declaration of faith that we believe God can take care of us. His argument is you will give because you believe God will take care of you. But what you're saying is you're going to give to Creflo Dollar, right? As a belief that God is going to continue to take care of you. Wait, wait a minute, Creflo. You don't need my money because you're going to declare that God can take care of you. Now, some will say, well, but, but God takes care of you through the giving. Okay, well, Okay, if God, so if God takes care of Creflo Dollar through my giving, then God takes care of me through someone else's give. Like, how does this work? Am, am I making a good point here? I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm hoping. I'm like, I, because, I mean, you know what? I'm going to do this. Creflo Dollar has a crowd. I'm going to say that the point I just made... <laughs> Does, does that sound good? Does that sound, I think it's a good point. Let me, I mean, let me make it, let me state it again. Creflo Dollar is saying that God woke him up and say that you give as a declaration of your dependence on God taking care of you. I give my money because I know God will take care of me. Well, to me, that would say, that would seem to indicate that according to what God told him at five something in the morning, Creflo Dollar should be standing behind the pulpit saying, Hey guys, I want to declare to everyone that I believe God can take care of me, no longer give any money to this ministry. No, I want the church to stop paying me. I want all of it because, because God is going to take care of me. No, you, you want me to declare that God will take care of me by giving you money. <laughs> okay. All right. Someone just said the world word of faith movement is just morphing to circumvent critique. Oh, that's... Hmm. That's pretty insightful right there. 
See, I always I, – I, I've said before that I have people who listen to this program who I should be listening to them. They should not be listening to me because that's pretty, that's pretty insightful. That's, a, that's, a, that's a something to explore. Is the word of faith simply morphing into something else to circumvent any critique? Hey, hey, we're, we're going to change it up a little bit, but in a roundabout way, what he's still doing is, hey, if you really believe God can take care of you, you're going to give. It, it, he's just not using the, it's, it's not based on the tithe anymore, so I'm not going to beat you over the, uh, over the head with the Old Testament tithe. What I'm going to tell you is, do you really believe God will take care of you? Do you? Do you? You know how you demonstrate your dependency on God to take care of you? You send us money. Now, he hasn't said that directly, but that if it turns into that, is it is it just changing its approach? I don't, that's something we will have to explore. I can't believe we're already over an hour. Man, we didn't get very far. Okay, that was a, that's a brilliant point. That's a brilliant point. All right, let, let's see how, see if we can get to a, a good, like, stopping point. All right, here we go. When Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hands up before God. I won't take nothing down to a thread or a shoe latchet. So you won't ever be able to say you made Abram rich, but I have declared my dependence upon God. His Okay, so Abram was like, I'm not going to take anything. I'm not even going to take a, a latch from your shoe because no one's going to be able to say that you made me rich. God made me rich. Who made you rich, Creflo? Who made you rich, Creflo? Who made you rich? Who made you rich? Because I know this, I don't have multi-million dollar homes. I definitely don't have a $60 million jet. I don't even have an Apple Air MacBook Pro. I, I don't even have a MacBook. I have a Dell broken down laptop. Uh, like, like, so uh, come on, who made you rich, Creflo? Because I bet you took lots of money. Are you going to take any more money? Because now if your whole, if your whole gimmick is, hey guys, you give because you're declaring that God, you're declaring your dependence on God to take care of you. And, I mean, what, what better way to, to get people? Hey, do you really believe God can, t can take care of you? Yes, I do. How much money do you have in your wallet? I have 20. Well, then give me 20. Because if you believe God will take care of you, you got no problem giving up that 20. I don't know how many people are currently listening to me. Do you really believe God can take care of you? How much money is in your bank account right now? How much? How much? I need you to go to the Church One app, or I need you to go to Theology Central and hit the Donate tab, and I need you to send me every penny. Because I want you to prove that you are dependent on God to take care of you. Now, of course, well, the question should be, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you believe God can take care of you, guy behind the microphone? Well, I do. Well, then you don't need my money. <laughs> All right? Right? I mean, it goes both ways. If you're going to use Abraham, Abraham refused to take anything. He refused to take anything because no one was going to make him rich. Well, Creflo Dollar, you're the definition of rich. time his giving was a response to God's ability to take care of him Chick-fil-A don't open on Sunday because it is a response that God is able to take care of them
well, if, if Chick-fil-A is so confident that God will take care of them, I'm going to drive over there. I don't know if they're open today. I'll drive there tomorrow and say, hey, you guys are so, de- you so trust that God's going to take care of you. I'd like my lunch for free, please. Hey, because God's going to take care of you. I mean, just understand, this can be thrown back and forth, right? Like, you can play a lot of games with this, right? It's always good when the people who are rich can say, hey, give me money, right? Because I trust that God will take care of me. Well, yeah, but you're, you, you, you don't need my money because God will take care of you. You don't need my money. Well, no, God's going to take care of me through your money. Well, then who's going to take care of me? Look at 1 Corinthians 16 and 2. Watch this. On the first day of each week, you should. We'll stop right there. He's going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So we can stop right there. So we're going to stop at, I need a notebook right here. We're going to stop at, oh, and for those who were talking bad things about the use of pencils today. I'm using a pencil, all right? So I would just like you to know that what I'm writing is more godly than what you write down. All right, 12 minutes and 34 seconds. So we went one hour and 12 minutes to review 12 minutes and 34 seconds of audio. All right, 12 minutes and 34 seconds is where we're going to stop. We'll back it up just to, we'll back it up right when he gets ready to say 1 Corinthians 16. We're going to stop it right there. We still have over an hour to go. You see why did I, I called this part one? I know it's going to take a long time. Look, there's a couple of reasons I do this. One is I... I don't want anyone to accuse me of taking someone else's content and just playing it because for fair use law, I've got to make sure that I, that what I produce is transformative. In other words, what I review, I review in such a way and critique and analyze it enough that it's transforms into something other than what it was originally. Clearly, an hour and 12 minutes of reviewing 12 minutes of audio, it makes it transformative. So we're not violating any copyright. I don't know if there's a copyright on it, but just to make sure that we're not. So we're following fair use law, which is established law, which allows podcasters to offer critique and review. It's very questionable about doing it when it comes to music, however. But I think in this particular case, we've proven, I think we've done that. Secondly, just because I don't want to just play their audio, I want us to really think about it and take it apart. So um, hopefully that was beneficial. So we didn't get very far, but something weird here. I, I feel like on one hand, yeah, he's repented but he's he's coming up with a new way of still getting money. It, it feels like this. He's just replaced one way of getting money with a new way of getting money. And man, the person who just gave me that 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 brought that point up. I don't even know what to say. I mean, I feel stupid. I I should have caught that, but they caught it before me. But that's why I that that's why I need uh, the listeners to participate because you guys know far more than I do. So many times is is this what we're witnessing here? Is a a kind of a metamorphosis where, hey, I'm not going to teach giving this way. Here's the new way I'm going to teach it. And the new way is this. Hey, hey, how much money you got? Oh, you got $50? That's awesome. Awesome. Praise God. Do you really trust that God will take care of you? Oh, you do. You really do? How much do you trust God? I trust God completely. Good. Then give us $50 because you don't need the $50 because you're giving 
shows your dependence on God to take care of you. You're not really dependent on God to take care of you if you got $50 in your wallet or $50 in your bank account. But if you, if you Venmo that to me, if you PayPal that to me, then guess what? You're showing you truly are dependent upon God. That would be great. That will show your faith. That's awesome. Now, of course, you could say, but wait a minute. If you're trusting that God will take care of you, then you don't need my $50. Is this a, is this a repentance or is this a metamorphosis into something, an evolution? Are we watching the evolving of word of faith? Now, if we determine that that's what's happening, let me make it very clear. I'm not the one who came up with that. If what we're discovering here, it was not me. It was a listener who determined this. They deserve the credit, all right? And I'll I'll verify I can give their name at some point because uh, so – all right. Someone says, I sat under this new hip sneakier word of faith for years and I resent it, and I think that's where this is going. Wow. That, I mean, that's insight right there. So if 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 this, I, I, I still have to be, I still got to listen to everything that's said. I don't want to be too dogmatic, but something doesn't feel right here. Hey, I'm repenting of everything I said about tithing, but then, but I got a new clever way to get your money. It just, I don't know. I wonder if he's going to keep bringing in the same amount of money, or I wonder if he's going to bring in more. I mean, to me, if I'm like, man, hey, guys, I mean, I mean what, what could be the least you do? I mean, what? I, I'll, I'll end with this question. What could you do if you were a preacher or a teacher and you realized that for years you taught a, a doctrine about giving that so brought in so much money that you're living this extravagant lifestyle with millions and millions of dollars and million-dollar homes and a $60 million jet? If you realize that you obtained all of that through a false teaching, what could be the least you could do? to repent of it? Do you sell your homes and give money to a charity? Like, what could you do? It seems like there would have to be more than going, hey guys, I'm not going to apologize because I wouldn't get here. So I won't apologize, but this is what I've discovered because God woke me up at five o'clock in the morning. Please note, the premise of his teaching seems to be more based on what God supposedly told him at five o'clock in the morning than it does scripture because his new teaching is you give to show your dependence upon God's ability to take care of you. That seems to be the message here, which is supposedly, it's not even coming from the Bible. I don't know if this should be celebrated. Some of the articles are celebrating it. I'm a little bit, now I know, listen, if he's repented of it, I do want to celebrate if there's repentance. I'm now, but I, now I'm not so sure he's repenting. Now I'm a little bit questioning. So guess what? Even though now I'm getting mad and getting irritated, and I'm beginning to resent this a little bit as well. Please know, I, that's one of the reasons I said what I said at the beginning. We still need to maintain a prayer and a heart that he would repent. All right? I, we ha- still have to condemn it. We still can resent the teaching. I still want to see the man repent. I still want to see the man come to a correct understanding because this seems very problematic, at least right now, but we have a ways to go. So, I'm going to say this. I'm concerned and I'm troubled with where this seems to be headed. I do condemn the believing God is talking to you because I reject that. But we will let this play out and see where it ends up. But that's an hour and 18 minutes. We're going to stop for now. All right. We will try to get back to this as soon as possible. All right. 
Everyone, thank you for listening. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. And uh, well, thanks to the person, th- thanks to the person who helped me find the sermon. Thanks to the person who just kind of made me see this maybe a little bit differently. And uh, well, we'll see. I can't wait to hear what everyone has to say. So start filling up the email inbox, newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a great day. God bless.